Amen. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, John writes, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son a Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. There's no easy way to outline this portion of scripture. Throughout the passage in 1 John, we've been talking about tests that are taken. And we, of course, have been looking at the Apostle John's teaching concerning the love of God. In brief, John has been speaking about what love proves. Our love for God proves our love for one another in verses 7 through 11. Again in verse 14. Again in verses 19 through 21. And God's love for us was proven by the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. That means Jesus in reality and in history really died on a cross for our sin and rose from the dead. This isn't some sort of philosophical speculation or hopeful gesture. We hope there's a God out there. We hope that he loves us. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is rooted in reality and history. This love that God has for us produces several assurances in our life. The Lord God is joined to us in verse 12. Again in verses 15 and 16. So God is joined to us. We are joined to him in verse 13. We have boldness or confidence in our lives in the day of judgment, verse 17. We are protected from fear, in verse 18. And one of the key words is obvious from the text. It's the word love, but there's another key word in the section, and it's the word perfected. And in our culture, in our society, when we think of something that's perfect or perfected, we think of it as being without flaw, or that it has no blemish, or that there's nothing at all wrong with it. The word doesn't always mean without flaw or error. Depending on the context, it can mean maturation. 
fruition, completion. And so he's describing a love that is growing, that is maturing, that is coming to full fruition. God desires for us to grow up. God desires for us to mature. Not only in our character and our discipleship, but in our love for him and then our love for each other. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, 23, we read that they may be made perfect. There's that word again. In love, complete, mature, grown up. That they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them as you loved me. When Jesus prayed that prayer in John 17. That they would know. That the world may know that you've sent me. And have loved them like you've loved me. Jesus is praying that God will love you. The same way that he loves Jesus. You should pause on that for just a moment. When you think about the incredible and amazing prayer that Jesus made on your behalf. Imagine the son saying to the father, I want you to love them the way you love me. Can you imagine God in heaven going, I don't think so. You're lovable. There, well, judge for yourself. See, we laugh, but we begin to understand something. And that is, we ask and we answer the question, on what basis does God love us? And this is the gospel. This is the story that we've been reading. God loves us on the basis of what Jesus has done. Love is the unmistakable evidence that we've been taught by God. Remember earlier in the chapter in verse 9? In this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Love is the evidence that we've been taught by God. Love is both a debt that we owe and a payment that's expected. In that sense, love is both a duty and a debt. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Love is the evidence of our faith in the Lord Jesus in verse 19. It's the proof of life earlier in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Love is the motive for service in 2 Corinthians 5:14, when Paul writes, the love of Christ compels us or constrains us. Love is the irrefutable testimony that we bear allegiance to Christ. Different people have different allegiances and loyalties. In this election season, people often will refer to themselves as conservative or liberal or progressive or socialist or whatever it is that they refer to themselves. In our culture and our society, we might identify as Scandinavian or Italian or whatever it is that you happen to be. The Lord calls us to pledge our allegiance to Christ and that the legible, that means the visible seal that we know about the love of God in verse 17 is that we love him and that we love each other. Again, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, in, in John's gospel, chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus again prays, and I have declared to them your name 
and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them, unquote. So Jesus is praying a prayer that God's love would be inside of you and that he himself would be inside of you. And so we begin to understand that this seems so odd and bizarre. What will we do knowing that this is what Jesus wants from us? How do we live our lives going, okay, I, I just heard what Jesus prayed and I just heard what Jesus asked for. And, and, and so how does this translate into the very real world in which we live? How do we love each other? Now, remember what I've already told you. Love in this instance doesn't mean a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of you. It isn't where your hands start to sweat and you get goosebumps on your arm and there's a chill that goes up and down your spine. Here, he's talking about a willingness to do what's right in any given situation that reflects the heart of God and the nature of God and the character of God towards those that God has brought into your life. I read a story in Sunshine Magazine about a professor of psychology, and it illustrates how difficult it is to love each other. And although he had no children of his own, whenever he saw a neighbor scolding a child for some wrongdoing, he would say, you should love your boy, you not punish him. And one hot summer afternoon, the professor was doing some repair work on a concrete driveway heading up towards his garage. And he was tired after several hours of work. He laid down his towel. He wiped the perspiration from his forehead. He starts towards the house. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees something moving towards the driveway. And it's a mischievous little kid. And he jumps right into the concrete. And the man says... He just rushes over, he grabs him, he starts yelling at him and he's getting ready to spank him when all of a sudden a, a neighbor comes to the window and says, watch it professor, don't you remember? You're the one who said you have to love the child. And the professor yelled back furiously, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. We read in the Bible and we know that this is what it says, but what does it mean? How do we do this? How do we love in the concrete? And John has already said we have to be born of God and know God in verses 7 and 8. We see God's love in verses 9 through 11. We experience the spirit of God inside of our hearts in verses 12 and 13. And so loving each other proves our confession and our testimony concerning Christ. And so John is tying your confession and your testimony to the very real way in which you treat each other. Loving each other proves that God is going to deliver us from judgment in verse 17. That God can and will deliver us from fear in verse 18. So let's look at the assurance in love in verse 14 again. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. The reason why this becomes such an important thing 
is because for the person who says, well, wait a minute, how do you know any of this is true? And John himself says, and we, the, the, the word we here, I think means all of the apostles. It means specifically him. And it's a reference to everyone who has seen and testify to the fact that the Father sent the Son. The New Living Translation says, translates it this way. He says, quote, furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Again, what John is basically saying is this isn't some sort of magical thing that we've made up out of whole cloth. This isn't isn't some misty memory of years gone by. John is basically making the statement that he himself is an eyewitness. He's reiterating what we already learned at the very beginning of first John chapter one, verse one, when it says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard that was with our own ears, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Have you ever said to a person, how do you know? And the person says, I was there. Imagine if John the apostle could show up at church tonight You see, if that were true, every single seat in this tiny auditorium would be filled. Can you imagine if we got on the radio, John the Apostle at Calvary South Denver tonight. He's going to relate. Walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, speaking to Jesus. He's going to tell us the truth about Jesus. John makes it clear that the Christian has at least two lines of evidence. I want you to think about this. Again, for some of you, this isn't a big deal. For me, it was a very big deal. For me, when people would tell me, God loves you, my unbelieving, hard-hearted response was invariably, I don't believe you. John's response is, you can believe that God loves you. My response, how do I know? John says, the eyewitness testimony of people who heard and participated in the ministry of Jesus, who knew him and loved him and walked with him and talked with him. So he says, this is the first line of evidence that I want to invite you to consider. The second line of evidence that I want you to consider is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart when you prayed the prayer and you said, God, would you be willing to forgive somebody like me? Would you forgive my sin? Would you wash me and cleanse me? Will you come into my life? Will you change me? And then he does. And note, John says, and and we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You hear that so often, it sounds almost meaningless, but this is the only place in the New Testament where the expression, the Savior of the world, takes place, other than in John chapter 4, verse 43 where the Samaritans realize and recognize that Jesus is God's Messiah. 
And so what John is basically saying is that Jesus is the son, is the savior of the world. What he's reminding them is that Jesus is the savior, not simply of Jews, but he is the savior of Gentiles. He's the savior. If you go through every time zone on the planet in Asia, in the South Pacific, in Alaska, in Hawaii, go through every single time zone and all of the people living in all of those time zones. He's the Savior. And the word Savior to the original person reading this letter, they would have immediately thought about the claims that were made by the leadership in their world. Do you realize when John is writing this, there is a particular emperor. He, Domitian is already dead. Nerva is the, the, the new Roman emperor. And on his coins, he writes Nerva, Soter. It's the same word as here. Savior, S-O-T-E-R. In other words, the Roman establishment and the Roman Caesars and the Roman rulers would refer to themselves as the savior of the Roman people. The reason why I'm even bringing it up again is again the current election cycle where everybody and their mother invites you to believe that they're the savior, that they'll save you socially, they'll save you economically, they'll save you politically, they'll save you, save you, save you. But once again, we're invited to ask the question, what is John intimating that you're saved from? And of course, what he's talking about is a far more difficult issue, a far more troubling issue, a far more fundamental flaw that has to be taken care of. It's the problem of sin. And so once again, we're invited to ask and answer the question, okay, how do I know that God loves me? John's given you two lines of evidence. I was there. I saw it happen. The Holy Spirit has come inside of you. But then you ask another question. How do I know that I love God? How do I know that God is at work in my life? What are the signs of genuine saving faith? And so when you're asking the question, how do I know? You wake up in the morning and you go, okay, I went to church. I heard the message and I've been reading my Bible and I'm talking with my friends. How do I know? How do I know this is real? And John's answer in part is, have you been convicted of your sin by God's Holy Spirit? In John 16, 8. Can you with confidence say that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? Paul says in Romans 8, 9 and 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you sense the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? Galatians 5, 22. Do you see the signs of power in your life as you testify to the power of God? And you go, no, it's really real. Jesus has really forgiven me. I've experienced his grace and his mercy and his love. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit of God was like the wind. You can't see where it's coming and, and you can't see where it's going. It is invisible, but you see the effects of the wind pushing against the trees. And you know that the wind is blowing. 
How do you know that the Holy Spirit is at work? How do you, how do you sense an invisible power at work in your life? And so John says, look in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There's a mutual dwelling that Jesus prayed for and John says has in fact come true. The word confession can also mean proclamation. And in this verb tense, when it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, it seems to indicate a kind of verb tense that you do it once for all. It isn't an ongoing confession where you go, well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Savior and that he came into the world. And the next day you go, well, but maybe not. Well, maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe so. Maybe not. What John is talking about is the person who has been finally and forever convinced. And remember, the word confess, proclaim, is the word homologeo. It means to say the same word that God has said concerning his son. And so when it says whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, that means you're confessing that Jesus is is God's one and only son who came to the earth as a human being, who died on Calvary's cross for sin, who rose from the dead never to die ever again, who ascended into heaven, that this Jesus promised that he was going to return. All of that is encapsulated in this single sentence. Remember, Jesus is the savior of the world in verse 14. And that that salvation is the provision of the forgiveness of sin. So does the phrase, God abides in him, does that mean that God abides in Jesus? Or does it mean that God abides in the person who's making the confession? I'm going to tell you, I'm uncertain. I'm rarely uncertain about stuff, but I am uncertain about this. It may mean that God abides in Jesus. It may mean that God abides in Jesus in the sense that, that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself it may mean that God abides or lives or dwells in the person who's made that confession. The idea being what Paul will, will talk about, that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you're saved. Because with the heart you believe and with the mouth you confess. Remember, you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. That it is a message that can be heard and understood and believed. Whatever it means, it's got to mean one of those. I think John is saying that Jesus is both God in the flesh and that the people who believe and make the confession that Jesus is God come in the flesh has God living in them. On my radio program today, someone was asking me a question about the nature of God and whether or not you could possibly be saved if you don't believe that God, the self-existent God, 
took on a second nature, a human nature, and became a man and lived among us, that that person cannot be saved. Because that means that you believe in a different God and a different salvation and a different gospel. People might be wondering, why is this such a big deal? And the reason why it's a big deal is because, again, Jesus makes it a big deal. It is a mutual indwelling. The same indwelling that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verse 21. Experienced by the Father and the Son. And so here's what Jesus basically will say. And John will record in John chapter 17. I'm going to flip there real quick. I hadn't planned to go there, but it's so important. In John chapter 17, verse 3, this is what Jesus says. I'm going to begin in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, speaking of himself, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And in verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul, John, is reiterating what Jesus said in the gospel of John. God the Father sent God the Son, that the Father was in the Son. And now John is affirming what Jesus said, that both the Father and the Son are pleased to come into your heart and into your life and dwell with you, that you experience a special privilege known only for believers. And in verse 16 it says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Remember the word abide is the Greek word which means to dwell. But it means more than just to rent an apartment or a vacation outlet. The idea in this particular instance means to permanently dwell, to forever dwell. It's your final place. It's the ultimate destination. And so I want you to think about that because according to John's theology, eternal life doesn't begin the moment you die and go to heaven and you're free from sin and the cares of this world. Eternal life begins the moment that you've confessed your sin and forsaken your sin and received Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. That's when life begins. And so, he says, and we have known and believe the love that God has for us. Here, I don't think that the we just simply is a reference to John and the apostles and the people who, who witnessed things earlier. The we that he's making reference to is certainly the apostles, but I think he's also making reference to the saints who are reading these words. So it's the collective we, and we have known. I, I think what he's doing is he's inviting the reader to join him and say what he's saying. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
in a most profound sense, the believers have known, and I, I want you to think about this for just a moment, and we have known. The word know here means to know by experience because you yourself have experienced it. Some of you may have gone to Israel. Some of you may have not. For those of you who have gone, and I, I say I know because I've been there, that the Temple Mount is like a 15-acre complex. Or I know by experience that the Jordan runs from the Galilee south along the Rift Valley. You can know it intellectually, and you can know it because you read it in a book somewhere, but I've actually been to the Galilee. I've seen where the Galilee empties into the Jordan, and then where the Jordan travels south as it makes its way to the Dead Sea. So he's talking about a knowledge that comes from a personal experience. The reason why this becomes important, he's, he, because he says, we have known by experience and believe. In what sense? By faith. That this isn't a faith divorced from knowledge. This isn't a faith absent knowledge. That's not what he's talking about. John refuses to disconnect knowledge from faith. Some people will say, well, you know, this is a faith proposition. John says, not, not completely. This is something that I've touched, tasted, seen, experienced for myself. The love of God isn't disconnected from the revelation of God or the character of God. And so he says that God's very nature is love. This is a love that informs, guides, and then explains God's actions that are consistent with his attributes. One Bible teacher wrote, everything God has done and will do from eternity past to eternity future overflows with love. This attribute of divine affection does not contradict any of his other perfections. God can be both loving and holy, loving and just, loving and sovereign. Practically speaking, the truth means that as we relate to God, we can always know that we are being treated with perfect, unconditional love. Pause for just a moment. Because some of you don't believe that. Some of you sometimes believe that God's been unfair to you. Or unkind to you. Or inconsistent with you. And John is saying, it's not possible. God is incapable of being any, nothing other than fair and just and kind. It, it, this author says, our circumstances may be difficult, but behind it all and through it all, God will accomplish his best in our lives. He writes, take a moment to thank God for the ways he's demonstrated his love to you in the last week, unquote. In other words, when you pause and you stop and you consider how has God displayed his love and manifested his love and made his love known to me? And so John says about boldness in love in verse 17, look what it says. Love has been perfected among us. There's that word, 
Love has been perfected. In what way? Love has grown, matured. It's come to completion among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. The sentence is difficult to understand in our culture, in our society, in language. But let's see if we can make some sense of it. Love has come to fruition, completion. We have grown in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. As we've grown in grace and in the knowledge of, of Jesus, we've grown in love and affection towards God and towards each other. What does John say? So that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. That word boldness, I want you to think about it for just a moment, is the exact polar opposite of fear. Another word for boldness is confidence. And there's some translations that actually translate this. Love has been perfected among us in that we may have confidence. So again, what is he talking about? The word boldness or confidence could also be translated freedom of speech. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because speech usually takes two forms. Freely expressed and guarded. Cautious. You know, you're around your liberal friends and, and they may or may not know that you're conservative. Or you're around your unbelieving friends and they may or may not know that you're a Christian. You're around people out there in the world and you're not sure how they're going to treat you or speak to you when they find out who you really are. Here, boldness in the sense of freedom of speech means the ability to express yourself with complete confidence knowing that you're not going to be judged or punished or condemned or experience loss. So it doesn't mean the freedom or the confidence to be rude or arrogant or boasting. It, in other words, it doesn't mean the freedom to say whatever you want without regard to a person's feelings or circumstances. That's not what it means. So what does the day of judgment mean? That we may have confidence or boldness in the day of judgment. This is the day when believers have to give an account of their life. This is the day that I guarantee you will come to each and every one of you. Each and every one of you will wake up one last time. You'll have that last cup of coffee or tea. You'll start the morning and some of you may not know that it's the last day that you'll ever live. But it is. That as the day continues and before the day comes to an end, your eyes will close, your heart will stop beating, and you will have to give an account of your life to God. Wouldn't you like to know what's going to happen at that point? Or would you rather think, well, I guess I'm just going to have to wait and see what happens. 
That's not a good thing. You should know now. You need to have confidence and boldness now. In what sense? The freedom of speech. In what sense? The freedom and confidence that you go, you know what? Lord, you know that I loved you and you loved me. You know that I received you as my Lord and my Savior. You know that I walked in confidence and boldness because I knew that my sin was forgiven, that your grace and mercy had covered my past and my present and my future. I believed what the Bible said, that Paul wrote and taught that I was saved by grace through faith and that I could with confidence and expectation believe that your love protects me from judgment. Judgment. We're invited to walk in boldness and confidence. I think about this for just a moment. Not just in the sweet by and by, but in the great here and now. Look what it says. Because in this world, we are like him. Look what the text says. Because as he is, so are we in this world. In what sense? What in the world does that mean? As Jesus is, think for just a moment. The Jesus who came to the earth to love you and to die for you and to rise from the dead, that same Jesus who ascended into heaven, has he changed? Has his character changed? Has his promises changed? Has his commitment changed? And so it says, because in this world, we're like him. Remember earlier in 1 John? I'm going to read it again because it's so powerful. John said in John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. So, because as he is, so are we in the world. Pause for just a moment again. Was Jesus informed? Yes. Was Jesus mature? Are we always informed? Not always. Can all of us with complete confidence and boldness refer to ourselves as mature? Here's what Paul says concerning himself. Not as if I've already arrived. Paul himself doesn't describe himself as a person who's already come to the end of the line, but as a person who has a long way to go. John knew there was a difference between our standing in Christ and our condition in Christ. And this is part of the New Testament teaching. Our standing in Christ is you're loved. And I want to put it to you this way. God will never love you more than he loves you at this very moment. He won't. It's not like the 60s song that I grew up with. Every day with you, girl, is sweeter than the day before. Every day I'll love you more and more, more and more and more. We can sing that to ourselves, but that's not the way God treats. He loves you as much as he'll ever love you right at this very moment. You'll never be more loved. You'll never be more accepted. You'll never be more forgiven than you are right at this very moment. 
But even though you're loved as much as you'll ever be loved, you are accepted as much as that you'll ever be accepted. Does that mean that we still have growth and maturation that still becomes available to us as we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus and in the love of God and the love that we have towards each other? That's exactly what this is meaning. So that's the difference between our standing in Christ and our condition in Christ. Our standing in Christ, perfect. Our condition in Christ, we have a little ways to go. And this is the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the theological idea of what it means to be accepted by God in the here and the now. And sanctification is that process that takes place in your life as you go forward towards glorification. So no wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what exactly is the Christian hoping for? That God's love and God's justice will unite in a single moment in time and space on the cross that's called Calvary. And when his love and his justice unite, you are loved and you are accepted. So here's John's point. So what do you have to be afraid of? That's why you can have boldness and confidence. What do you have to fear? In verse 18 it says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Here's John's argument. You have confidence and boldness. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because you're becoming like Jesus in love. Why? Because as you become more and more like Jesus in love, you start loving each other. Why? Because the presence of love in your life and the very fact that you love each other is proof positive that you are accepted and loved and justified. And so, he's not speaking of the righteous regard when it says there is no fear in love. Well, what, what about all of the passages in the Bible that says we're to fear God? Well, again, fearing God is is the righteous regard that we have towards a perfect God and a perfect Savior. In other words, it isn't, it's a healthy and righteous regard for the perfection of God. Here, John means the fear that comes from a sense of personal consciousness of guilt, personal shame, personal uh, loss. This is the kind of fear that he's talking about. Fear is in part the consciousness of guilt, the awareness of guilt, the aware of punishment that's deserved. But it's hard to think about those things when you're really loved by God. And then you really walk in love towards each other. Mature love involves confidence and boldness. John writes, because fear involves torment. The word here doesn't mean rotting in hell forever. It's the idea of punishment. In other words, fear involves punishment. Think about it for just a moment. 
God loves us. God sent Jesus. Jesus has already received our punishment. In Romans 8.15, it says, So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should instead be like God's very own children adopted into his family, calling him Father, dear Father. So to express this fear or lack of confidence or lack of boldness is to show that the person hasn't been made mature or complete in love. Imagine if you lived in a home where every day you expected your father to come home and beat you. Some of you tragically, horribly, terribly may have grown up in a home like that. Where you've suffered abuse of all kinds. But I'm here to tell you that that's not normal. Most people don't really grow up that way. Most people actually do grow up in a home where their mom and their dad, they love them. They may discipline them, but they love them. And so, John is writing, what are you afraid of? What is it that you're fearful of? The future? The past? Judgment? Now, in the first century, apparently, believers at that time, when John is writing these words, some of them were terrified. They were terrified that they could die at any moment and that they're going to face judgment and they're not ready for judgment. You know, it's interesting about the passage that you're reading and this epistle that you're reading. It's to help each and every person who has ever come and said to themselves, I think I'm afraid to die. I don't think I'm ready to meet God. I don't think that I'm ready to do this. Let's talk about fear for just a moment. I used to think that the opposite of love is hate. But I don't think that that's true. I think that the opposite of love is fear. And let me tell you why. Because if you think about fear for just a moment, if you could take fear and you could put it on the stove and you could boil it down to its ultimate essence, what is it? What is fear ultimately? If I were to use one word to describe that one word fear, it would be the word loss. I could lose my life. I could lose my girlfriend. I could lose my job. I could lose my health. I could lose. I could lose. I could lose. That's what fear is. Loss. In the world in which I grew up in, there was a gigantic fear of nuclear war. Starting in kindergarten, from the very first day that I ever showed up at school, they showed us a film and they showed us how to, to hide under our desk in the case of a nuclear mushroom cloud. And so in first grade, you'd hear a, 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 woo, you'd hear a drill, you'd crawl into your in, into your underneath your desk or whatever. But by the time you get to third grade and you kind of know what a nuclear blast is and you see the films of it wiping everything out and you, you begin to think, how is hiding under my desk going to help me? How is this going to serve as a sufficient way to save me in the event of a nuclear holocaust? If you were to ask your teenager today, what are you afraid of? What would they say? Imagine you could ask them. Well, I'm afraid that my parents might die. I'm afraid of failing in school. 
I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of a car accident. I'm afraid of loneliness. I'm afraid of not having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, of being beaten or injured. Do you know what all of those things have in common? I could lose something. But you know what love is? Love is voluntary loss. This is what the Bible says. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. You know what love is? Love is a willingness to sacrifice yourself for somebody that you care about or that you love. Now think about this though. Fear is involuntary loss. Love is, I've already made the decision that I'm going to do without in order for you to have. That's the difference. I heard a story that during the days of the Roman persecution, a Christian was thrown to a hungry lion in the, in the Colosseum. And as the spectators cheered, this wild beast pounced. But this Christian apparently whispers something into the lion's ear. And in fear and terror, it begins to back off. And then the lion approaches again and he whispers in his ear again and he backs off. Finally, the emperor sends a Roman centurion out there and says, find out what's going on. And so the centurion comes back and he says, the Christian whispered in the lion's ear, after dinner, you're going to have to speak a few words. Yeah, we laugh, don't we? For some of you, the most terrifying thing, the most fearful thing that you could ever imagine is getting up in front of a group of people and having to talk. That's terrifying. That's paralyzing. But the opposite of love isn't fate. Hate, it's fear. Love is about voluntary loss. And that's exactly what the Bible says. You know, when I was preparing this message, I was thinking about an event in Highlands Ranch where a woman child was attacked and nearly killed by a Rottweiler. And the woman pulled the dog off her child and saved the child's life. And her love for her child overcame her fear. But there was something in the news today that I found very interesting. In today's uh, online, uh, I was reading at the Jim Dennison Forum on, on Truth and Culture and it, and it talks about this man named Sean Cunningham. And you want to put that picture up, James? <clears throat> and it's a, it's a picture. Now, I want you to look closely at this picture. Do you see a, a man with a ball cap and glasses? He's stretching out his hand. They're at a baseball game. His eight-year-old son is with him. And the player at the plate has released the bat, and the bat is flying towards his son's face. Now, I want you to look at everyone in the picture. As you look at the crowd, look at the people moving away from the bat. The bat is coming, and they're moving away because they're afraid that they might get hit. But one person, one person is moving towards the bat. Who is it? It's the dad. How much time do you think he has to think about, hey, I wonder if I should stick my hand out and save my son? It's a split decision. That's exactly what he said. He said, I guess I just went into dad mode. And my hand went out and the bat hit him, left a pretty amazing bruise. But his son said, his son is named Landon. He told the reporter, I have a great dad. My dad's my hero. 
But when I saw that picture, that's exactly what I was thinking about this passage. This passage shows us something about a father's love for his child. And it becomes a tiny little picture because I want you to think about this for just a moment. Fear causes you to run away from your problems. Fear causes you to not deal with them, to, to, to not have to, to personally deal with them. But love does exactly the opposite. How do you make the fear go away? The only way that you can make the fear go away is to believe God's revelation about his love for you in Christ. This father's reaching his hand in order to protect his son. But everything that is in the Bible is one gigantic story as God has been reaching through time and space in history to keep the crushing consequences of sin from destroying you. And then proving his love for you. And if you feel terrorized by the past or upset about something in the present, or afraid about something in the future. This is the point that John is making. You can have boldness and confidence because everything in the past that could have hurt you, in the present and in the future, in the ultimate sense, God has already dealt with. John, Paul will later write to the Romans, he'll say the outward person is perishing. Or actually it's in 1 Corinthians. He'll say that the outward person is perishing, but the inward person is, is being renewed day by day. And it says we love him because he first loved us. In the New King James Version it says we love him because he first loved us. But some versions read we love. Because in the oldest manuscripts, him is absent. And so I thought, which is it? Should the text say, we love him or we love? Whatever the right reading isn't, we love him because he first loved us. It's, it's, it is, we love because he first loved us. Whether him is present or absent in the text, the point of the passage becomes that God himself is the source for our ability to do what God has asked us to do. He's given us the ability to do exactly what we need to do because he's the source. He's the initiator of love. John invites us to allow the love of God to fill us and then overflow us. And in verse 20, it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? John has no patience whatsoever for the person who wants to duck the divine obligation and duty to love. Some people might read this and go, I'll tell you, I can love God who I can't see because he is very attractive. He's an attractive, invisible God. And then I look at my brothers and my sisters. Not always lovable, not always attractive, not always somebody you want to be with. But this is the seventh time in the epistle that John has used the expression, if someone says. This is number seven. 
if someone says. It's always in the context. If a person says one thing and does another, there's a problem. Here's what John is saying. Profession doesn't always mean possession. It could be that John's quoting one of the Gnostic teachers, the false teachers, the spiritual elitists, who said, I love God. But then they refuse to have friendship and fellowship, exercise mercy and compassion towards those people who are in the kingdom of God. In other words, they've given themselves permission to refuse each other and reject each other. Jerry Vine says, do you love your brother? People who profess to love God, yet at the same time have ugliness and coldness and hatred and prejudice in their heart towards their brother have convinced in their mind an imaginary God or who have conceived in their mind an imaginary God who will allow them to love him while at the same time to hate their fellow man. Theirs isn't the God of the Bible. This isn't the God of love that John presents so clearly that we just cannot miss it, unquote. For some to question another statement, I love God, might seem harsh or critical or judgmental. But John says exactly the opposite. John says, I have every right to ask you to do what Jesus has asked you to do. And he's using blunt language. Fear and pretense often go together. By the way, do you know what the first mention of fear in the Bible is? It's in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.10, Adam and Eve are running. They're hiding from God. Adam and Eve, they're trying to cover their sin. And that's what fear does. It says, I want to remove myself from the problem. I want to remove myself from the people. I want to remove myself from God. Now, I want you to think back to the picture that you saw earlier. The father who loves his son won't run away from the problem. He's not running away from the circumstance. He's running towards it when everyone else is running away. John isn't afraid to be honest with those who are intolerant of the truth. John has pointed out three lies in this letter. Three lies that he sees clearly in the lives of false teachers. Number one, they made the claim while disobeying God's command. That's a lie. They said, we love God, we obey God. But they really didn't. First John chapter 1, verse 6 and chapter 2. Number two, they made the claim that they could deny the deity of Jesus. That they could deny the deity, the identity of Jesus. And still be, have a right relationship with God. John said, that's a lie. They made the claim that they could hate other Christians and still have a right relationship with God. John says, that's a lie. So I want you to think about that for just a moment. For the person who says, I can have a right relationship with God, but not obey him. I can have a right relationship with God, but not believe what the Bible says about God's son. I can have a right relationship with God, and it doesn't matter how I treat other people. John's saying, that's a lie. 
That's a lie. That's a lie. In John's world, you can't be dishonest about obeying Jesus and denying God's revelation and refusing to love God's people and call it the truth. And in verse 21, it says, and this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. That's his logic. It's rooted in Christ's command and John's appeal. He's not saying you have to do this because I'm telling you to do it. He's saying Jesus has asked you to do this. And there's good reason why he's asked you to do this. When God's love fills your heart, everything changes. I want to close with just a quick story that I read today. There was an evangelist. This is during the Depression. And I was thinking about this because I think about my grandma and my grandpa often. And, and my grandma and my grandpa, my, my grandpa rode the rails. He was like a hobo during the Depression. And my granny said, if I'm going to marry you, you're going to have to stop riding the rails and you're going to have to get a job and settle down. And during the 30s, there was an evangelist who described his mother as being love personified. And as a boy, he found her sitting at a table with, a, with an old tramp. And a tramp is what you'd call a hobo or a bum back in, back in the Depression. And apparently, she'd gone shopping and she met this tramp along the way and, and invited him home for a warm meal. And during the conversation, the tramp said, I wish there were more people in the world like you. And his mother said, oh, there are. You just have to look for him. And the old man simply shook his head and he said, but lady, I didn't look for you. You looked for me. And when that mother reflected her Christian kindness towards the tramp, she did something more than just simply offer him welfare. It was compassion that went out of its way to be lovely to the unlovely. You see, this is the real love. This is the love that goes looking. The love that goes looking for someone to care about. Someone to minister to. Someone to pray for. Someone to support. Someone to encourage. And that's exactly the story of the Savior, isn't it? Jesus came looking for you. He leaves heaven. He doesn't run away from your problem. He runs towards you. And he solves the problem. He came looking for us among the sick and the lame and the bruised and the broken hearted. He came looking for us the person who was wandering in a world that was dark and wicked. He was looking for the prisoner. He was looking for the brokenhearted. He was looking for someone exactly like you. Has he found you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. A love that comes looking. A love that doesn't run away. A love that doesn't hide. A, a love that doesn't blame. But looks for the solution. 
to life's deepest problems and most difficult circumstances. And so again, Lord, we pray that we would take to heart the the passage that we're reading and that we would think long and hard that this is the most powerful proof that's available that we really do love you and that you really do love us and that we really can love each other. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Kept you a little bit late.